you're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. So check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. We are in the book of Hebrews. We are winding down. Next week will be our very last week in the book of Hebrews. We are in chapter 13. So if you open your Bibles to chapter 13, we'll be in verses 7 through 17 this morning. 7 through 17. I'm calling this sermon, Strengthened by Grace. Strengthened by Grace. What strengthens you? What strengthens you? Who strengthens you? When you're needing, when you're feeling down, you're feeling low, you're feeling weak, where do you go for strength? I've been reminded this time of year, you have the anniversary of Lieutenant Michael P. Murphy, and you see during Memorial uh, Week, CrossFit is notorious for doing the Murph. And the Murph is, it's just crazy, is what it is. But Lieutenant Michael Murphy was a Navy SEAL and most famously recognized in the movie Lone Survivor. And he was the guy who, was, who uh, took one for the team. He ran to the top of the hill in completely an exposed environment, taking on gunshots in order to receive a signal on the phone to call for help. He knew he was going to die. And while he was getting shot, he was still finishing the phone call. And then after he finished the phone call, he fought until his wounds finally got the best of him. And so on June 28, 2005, he passed away, and he was honored incredibly. And so one of the things that you see at CrossFit is that they, they host that, um, that workout called the Murph in honor of this fallen soldier. And you see them do that actually with a lot of heroes kind of in, in our society. And so the Murph, what is it? This is what the workout consists of. You start by putting on a 20-pound vest. That's in and of itself enough for me. But you put on a 20-pound vest. You then go run a mile. You come back and do 100 pull-ups. And then you do 200 push-ups. Then you do 300 squats. And then you conclude your workout by running another mile. I'll tell you, I've done this twice. This is true. Look, don't talk to me. Don't talk back to me. We're on Facebook Live right now. I don't need any sass. I've done it twice without the 20-pound vest, okay? I'm just going to say that right now. I got enough poundage right here. It was not exciting, and it hurt really bad. But that was like 10 years ago when I was at CrossFit. I'm clearly not there now. And so it's motivating. It's a, it's a motivating workout. It's, it's an in, insane workout. Average human beings are going and doing this. And so it does give people strength in some regard to push beyond normal bounds, to push beyond normal limits. And so we need, and while that is motivating and while that is strengthening, it, it is just temporal. We need a strength that is bigger. We need a strength that is stronger, that is long-lasting. A strength that is not built upon the memory of a person, but is built upon a person who is, who was, and who will forever be alive. We can be inspired by so many things in life, but church, we have to be strengthened by something or someone that is able to strengthen our deadened souls by bringing them to life. We need strength that is sustained not in memory, but by a God who truly reigns in the heavens right now as we speak. We need strength that's not given out of our efforts to do push-ups and pull-ups, but by a God who strengthens us by His own power, His own efforts. And so I want us to be strengthened this morning by standing firm upon the grace that was given to all of us through Jesus Christ. Christ, not the Murph, not anything else. And so I want us to see that grace strengthened 
towards us in these ways. We'll see grace strengthened in our leadership, in our teaching, a grace-strengthened reproach, a grace-strengthened praise, and a grace-strengthened submission. We'll walk those out here in a second. And so first, a grace-strengthened Grace strengthened leaders. Let me read verses 7 and 8. So we just come off of, hey, let brotherly love continue. Be hospitable. Okay? Honor marriages. Do not be immoral. Do not be, or be free from the love of money. Be content with who your God is. And then also, remember here. Remember your leaders. Verse 7. Those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So leaders, this could be a couple different categories here. If you jump back to chapter 11, you see really just a whole chapter of leaders throughout the Old Testament, known as the Hall of Faith. It could be referring back to Abraham, to Moses, to all those who were before but it also refers to current leadership. The leadership that planted this church, that founded this body of believers in first century Christianity. And these leaders, the church is to remember them. This is important, to remember them. Remember the words that they spoke. The words that they spoke were God's words. They opened up the Old Testament and they pointed to and showed how it came to fulfill who Jesus is. So the Old Testament is not different. It is part of the Word of God. Remember how your leaders have spoken those words to you. Consider their life. Consider how they show brotherly love. How they are hospitable to strangers. How they are honorable in their marriages. How they conduct themselves and are content and are free from the love of money. Consider the way that they are living. Imitate their faith. When they, when they deal with all sorts of persecution, because the leaders are not exempt from this, when they're dealing with persecutions and temptations, imitate their faith and how they hold on to and are anchored to Jesus Christ. And Jesus, He is the leader of leaders. And I want you to understand that because we live in a very anti-authoritarian society. We really hate the top. But what he's saying here is, remember the leaders, remember the leaders as they are put in that position according to the ultimate leader, the capital L leader, Jesus. He is the leader of leaders. Leaders change, Jesus does not. Leaders change, Jesus does not. This, this language of Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever is pretty similar to what you see in the book of Revelation but in a different chronological order. In the book of Revelation, we are reminded of the one who is, who was, and who is to come. They highlight the present, then the past, then the future. Here it is, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so there's an emphasis on even the now in the book of Revelation. But here's what your leaders are being compared to. Whatever leader you remember whether it's in the Old Testament or whether it's the one who founded your church, what you need to do is, that, is see is that Jesus is the same. That as your leaders, the Moses followed and imitated Christ or God in the same manner that the, the church planters in the New Testament are following and imitating Christ, if you will. Jesus is the same through all of that, even though Leadership changes from generation to generation. So the word, the life, and the faith of leadership through Scripture is consistent. It is not contradictory when it is done in obedience to God and His Word. And so there's a reason that leaders are mentioned here. They're mentioned here because as these persecuted believers are facing these challenges, they need solid leadership to guide them through. And this will make sense as we kind of work through this passage. So church, remember your leaders. Remember your leaders. This isn't necessarily talking about pastors. 
This is talking about really the mature believers who help kind of raise up a community of people. Understand in this first century, there wasn't a church on every corner. There were synagogues on every corner, but there were not churches on every corner. It wasn't like they could just run to the nearest rabbi or or the nearest pastor, if you will. And so remember your leaders in the, sense of, in the sense of Redeemer, remember your pastors, remember your ministry leaders, remember your community group leaders, remember how they speak the word of God to you. Are the words that they speak to you, are they the same words that God reveals in his Bible? Consider their lives, consider how they conduct themselves. Do you see a dichotomy between the character of those in the scripture and their lives or my life? Do they model brotherly love? Do they model hospitality? Imitate them as they imitate Christ. Is there anything about them that doesn't look or sound or act like Jesus? What does look or sound or what is it that they do that acts like Jesus. And when you see that, church, imitate them. And so the Lord is kind. We have to understand the Lord is kind to give us leaders to follow. We, we always are needing to follow someone. We're always needing that example, if you will. And this is a grace to us to lift us up, to encourage us. But I, I want to let you know that this isn't some blind leadership here. Leaders have a responsibility. Leaders are to humbly remember that they are not Jesus. I am not Jesus. I am not the Savior up here. I'm just a sinner saved by grace called to be a pastor. Our leadership will fail. I will fail you. I will say the wrong thing. I'll do the wrong thing. I'll post the wrong thing up on Facebook. So will you and your leadership. But we have to understand, we may change and fault and fail in many ways, but Jesus remains the same. Jesus is not undergoing transformation. We are undergoing transformation. And so remember, leaders, remember how we were different yesterday? And even remember how we're different even today from yesterday. And remember, leaders, we will be different tomorrow in the future. When we see Christ face to face, our our glory will be realized and we will be perfectly um, brought up to Him. So with that, I want to say, humbly accept your position as a leader, but at the same time, do not allow your failures or your setbacks or your transformation to cause you to shrink back from the responsibility of leading. Our leadership is not done in the power and the strength of the leader of the individual. Our leadership is done in the power and the strength of God's grace. And church, don't be fooled to think that you can navigate these murky cultural waters that we're in right now on your own. Don't think that you can just handle this on your own. Sure, you probably can in some degree, but ultimately you're going to struggle. We all need the strength of a Christ-centered leadership and a church body to carry us through. You were not designed to be alone. Nobody's supposed to be a rogue Christian. And the first century believers were facing hard times and they were hearing twisted things. And so we see now we need to move towards a grace-strengthened teaching, verses 9 through 12. So do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, verse 9. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent or the tabernacle, or the temple, have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the priest as a sacrifice for sin 
are burned outside the camp, outside the city. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his, through his own blood. So let me try to explain what's going on here. The camp, inside the camp. The camp is referring to the Jews, to God's own people. It's referring to the temple. It's referring to the place where sacrifices for sin would be made. This is the in crowd, if you will. Outside the camp, this is outside the city. This is outside of Judaism. This is where if a sacrifice is made, whatever was not burned on the altar, all the leftovers of that sacrifice were taken outside of the city and burned up because they were a defilement. That is outside the camp. So sacrifices were made inside the camp by Jews. The leftovers of those sacrifices would often be food for the priests. So they would eat up what is left over. There is one sacrifice, however, that the leftovers were not consumed. And this was on the Day of Atonement when a sacrifice would be made inside the camp and whatever was left, left over would be taken outside the camp, but that sacrifice would not be eaten by the priest, but would be fully consumed, incinerated, if you will, burned up to nothingness. And so it would be outside the camp, completely destroyed. And the picture of it was this, that the blood of the sacrifice inside the camp would sanctify the people would bring the people into the presence of God, and the rest of the sacrifice outside of the camp would be a representation of all of the defilement of Israel, all of the sin of Israel, completely done away with in the body of the sacrifice. And so there's some diverse or strange teachings that are creeping up into this church. And so the Jews are most likely coming to these first century Christians, believers, who were formerly Jews but now Christians, and they're challenging them saying, your religion is not legit. I don't see your church buildings. I don't see any of your sacrifices. Your priests aren't eating any of their food. We have sacrifices. We have a temple. We have legitimate religion, but where's yours? That's the challenge. But if we remember, if we were to jump back to chapter 9, verse 9, the author reminds us that everything in the Old Testament is like a big giant arrow pointing to the New Testament, that it would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And the Jews missed that. They misunderstood their own Bible. And when Jesus came, they rejected him. They took him from inside and kicked him out. And so here's the point. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross has no leftovers. There's no leftovers. There are no other sacrifices that are needed because Jesus has fully fulfilled them in every way. Jesus was fully consumed sacrifice for sinners. His blood made sinners perfect. His body fully absorbed the defilement of sinners. And so just as Jesus was defiled and just as he was rejected by his own camp, by his own people, and then he was crucified outside the camp, so the rejection continues to the church, his saints, his people, as they are being tempted with diverse teachings and strange teachings, and the church is being told, you're either in the camp, you're with us, or you're outside the camp, which is it? And so we have to come to, the church is having to come to a teaching that is strengthened not by foods. You don't need to prove your religion. You don't need to prove yourself by having sacrifices and having to eat it. You don't have to eat anything because Jesus fully accomplished it. There's nothing left over for you to eat. He has done it all on his own. So we need teachings that are strengthened not by foods but by grace. And so again, like we remember from Hebrews 9, the Old Testament had a purpose it was a giant arrow pointing to the New Testament, to Jesus. We so often hear it that the Old Testament and the New Testament are different. Like the Old Testament God is a different God than the New Testament God. That is, that is a farce. That is not true. It is one God. It's one story. It's just as true in the Old as it is in the New. The Old Testament shows us that 
We are sinners. When we're pressed against the law, we realize we don't match up. The Old Testament shows that we need a better priest. We need a better blood, a better king, a better prophet. We need something better. And so Jesus comes and fulfills all of these things. He is the better blood. He is the better prophet. He is the better priest. He is the better king. He is the better sacrifice for sins. And so he saves us apart from us. We don't have to do anything. And he brings us to himself. He is the perfect everything. And so Jesus, not only did he go to his own people, go to his own camp and preach to them a gospel, but he was also rejected by them. But that didn't stop him from his work. He not only perfected us by his blood, but he took on our sin. He became our adultery. He became our immorality. He became our hatred. He became our anger. He became our lust. That's why he was defiled, because of you and me, because of the church. And so this is grace. Receiving something we don't deserve. We don't deserve him. The Jews don't deserve him and neither do the Gentiles. Nobody on this planet deserves the grace of God, but God freely gives it. We have a lot of camps in our society right now trying to vie, vying for our attention and our full participation. What sort of teachings are coming from these camps and are trying to intertwine and mix in with Christianity? Let me give you a couple of examples of a couple of camps here, just the obvious ones. I mean, when COVID-19 happened, you saw a couple of camps form within the Christian community, those who were the, the hashtag stay at home and those who were the hashtag anti stay at home. And then you started to see a couple of camps form with the race issues. You have the, the Christians who are hashtag Black Lives Matter, and then you have the Christians who are hashtag All Lives Matter. You have all these camps vying for our attention, our time, our energy, trying to pull us in fully and trying to say, hey, this is the way it is. And I know what these pressures can do to us. If we're 100% bought into these camps, they ultimately divide us. And that's what we've seen. Go look on Facebook. Some of y'all have had some divisive interactions with one another over these matters. These camps have divided many of us and divided many of our believers around the world. And so are your personal convictions, whatever they may be, are they driving a wedge or are they pulling together? Are you driving a wedge or are you pulling together? And I'll say this, and this is just a warning, a scriptural warning, that if you are being divisive, you're ultimately dividing yourself against the Lord. You're putting yourself against Him. And so look, there's nothing wrong with engaging certain camps. There's nothing in the Bible that says you have to be one hashtag or the other. You can be a believer in engaging those different camps. You can engage them. You can, you can maybe support them in some way, but all those camps at the end of the day are imperfect. They're imperfect because they're being led out by imperfect people. Not saying their goal and their objectives are wrong or bad. They're generally good. But at some point, a line is going to be drawn in the sand between those camps and the camp that is the gospel of Jesus. So think about those camps. Whatever camp you're a part of or dabbling in, if you will, what strength do those camps actually give you in accordance to God? Camps that are outside of Jesus ultimately weaken you. It's like eating that food. If I do this enough, Jesus will be pleased with me. Don't eat that food. It will ultimately weaken you. Because ultimately, if you're buying in hook, line, or sinker on the, in, in whatever camp it is that is apart from Christ, you'll ultimately hear that Jesus is not enough. You also need X, Y, and Z. You need Jesus plus this for you to be a real, true Christian or believer. So we need to be strengthened by grace. The grace of the Lord strengthens us. It binds us together. 
The Lord is not asking you to somehow save yourself from your sins or to make up for your shortcomings in life by your own power. He's not asking you to do that. But let me show you what it means to be strengthened by grace. Paul illustrates this very well in 2 Corinthians 9, let me read this, or 12. Let me read this to you. He was humbled by God and said this, But the Lord said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God's grace gives us strength because it ultimately reminds us we are not in control. God is in control. We may face hardships, calamities, all of these things, but we are strengthened by God in His grace. When we try in our own strength, we, are act, we actually find ourselves then burning out or running out of energy. Look, we are humans with limited capacities. We can only go so far in our own power, right? I could only do the Murph once or twice in my life. I can't do it again. My back will go out. I promise you. I'm limited in my capacity, and so are you, and it's never enough. So are you strengthened this morning? These cultural camps do not have eternal power. They do not have eternal strength in what they teach and what they stand for. I'm not saying they're wrong or ungodly. Maybe so. They ultimately, is what I'm saying, they ultimately fall short. But there is eternal grace in the true understanding of Jesus and His work on the cross and the resurrection. Jesus suffered outside the camp. That means that Jesus was not all about being in the popular crowd. He wasn't just swept away by popularity. Are you willing to engage the camps with compassion, with empathy, but bring the gospel to bear knowing that it will not make you popular? Look, this is a real struggle in American society. We all want to be popular. We all want to be known. We all want the likes. We want to reach the Facebook maximum of 5,000 friends so that we can show, hey, look at us. And Jesus is saying, it's not a popularity contest. Jesus considered your soul, my soul, more valuable than his own popularity. More valuable. More valuable than his own life. How about you? Is your popularity, your reputation, your view of others, the opinions of others, is it more valuable to you than Jesus? Come to where Jesus is. Come outside the camp where it's not so popular. Come to where disapproval by the world is met with ultimate cosmic strength. And so we move into verses 13 and 14. A grace-strengthened reproach. 13 and 14. Therefore, therefore, let us go to Him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So verse 13 transitions to practical advice for the church. That is why you have the therefore. So this is who Jesus is. This is what he has done. Therefore, do this. Jesus has come to us. He's come to us. And now by His power, we are to go to Him. So you see here, there's no room for laziness. It doesn't matter if you're being persecuted, if you're being beat down, if you're being recognized as unpopular. You are to go to Him. And where is He? He's outside the camp of popularity. And so when the church is truly the church among the camps, then they become ultimately a reproach that is to be received with disapproval. So they become a reproach to the camp. Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. That's reproach. And he endured it. He didn't get on Facebook and cry about how his own people don't like him anymore. 
No, he endured it. He took it because he knew what the bigger picture was. What the bigger aim was, the bigger goal was. And so the church, as much as they love their lost family and friends, had to consider the cost of actually following Jesus. And so really, outside the camp for believers is the everlasting city. And that's what he's reminding these believers. Look, don't put your hope in Jerusalem here. I know they're tearing you down saying, hey, look, you don't have sacrifices. You don't have a temple. But understand, 70 AD is about to roll in and the Romans are about to completely wreck this place. They won't have a temple. They won't have a place to do sacrifices. They'll have nothing to show for their religion, but you, your faith will carry on. And here we are 2,000 years later. And so, for the believer, outside the camp is an everlasting city. A city that is, a home that is, a kingdom that is, not of this world. And ultimately, Revelation says it is a kingdom that is to come. A real physical earth, a real physical city, a real physical interaction, a real physical creation where we all get to be together. That is the kingdom we're aiming for. That is the city we're aiming for. That is our eternal camp. And ultimately, the world does not like being outside the camp. As Christians, we have to engage the camp. We have to engage the camps and do so with a redemptive lens. And we have to understand, our hope is outside where Jesus is. We can engage, be in the world, not of the world. And remember, ultimately, our hope is outside the camp. Because look, When these Jews came to faith in the book of Acts, it showed that when the Spirit fell, they would end up going to the temple and praising. They didn't just give up going to the temple and worshiping. They would do it, but they did it with a different perspective, a different lens. They didn't go to the temple thinking, well, Jesus' sacrifice covered our sins 90%. Now we need to go cover the rest, uh, the 10% of those sins with other sacrifices. No, they went to the temple with a redemptive lens going, oh, the temple, the sacrifices, the blood, everything about my religion, Judaism, was pointing to Jesus, my Savior. And so they go to the temple just praising Jesus for what he has done. So they were able to continue to engage the camp, though, though they were outside the camp. So what sort of redemptive lens are you bringing to the camps that surround you? Maybe that you're in. How are you engaging those camps and remaining faithful to Jesus at the same time? This is where I I caution you. You have to be really careful not to syncretize what the world is saying into what God is saying. You have to create a very clear distinction between the world and between the gospel. the The words of the world and the words of Scripture. But we are not to just avoid and run away. We can engage. So how are you doing that and remaining faithful? Have you sacrificed popularity of your faith so within those camps? You've become ashamed maybe of Jesus? And so when I say go in, I don't want you to go in and just pull the pin and just throw a grenade and just blow everything up, right? Speaking figuratively here. I don't want you to just create tension and turmoil for no reason. Be wise as you engage. Be empathetic. Have compassion. Go in with mercy. When you see Jesus going throughout and seeing uh, men and women who look like sheep without a shepherd, he sees them with compassion. And he knows that they're against God. He knows that they're against the gospel, but he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. So go in engaging wisely and ask yourself as you go in, not how can I go point, counterpoint with them and win the debate, but ask the question, how can I win them over to Christ? How can I win them over to Christ? And be ready. You will ultimately be rejected at some point. But you can't allow that to just hurt your feelings because you're no longer going to be in the popular crowd. We engage the camps, but we're also an offense to the camps because we bring the gospel to bear. Our goal isn't to just take sides, but to understand, to love, to care, to bring healing to people who are truly hurting. Yes, 
we as believers want a better uh, society. We want a better life now. But we engage the camp seeking really an eternal city to come. Our goal isn't ultimately lying in a new system change in, our Amer- in, in America that that's the ultimate goal, that that's the ultimate hope, that that's the ultimate reality. It's not. Christ is our ultimate hope. He is our ultimate aim. And that will ultimately draw a stark line in the sand between you and the world. It will be an offense to them. You won't be liked for it. You'll be a a reproach and you must endure it with love and with compassion. And so is Jesus worth it to you for that reproach? You're like, man, this, this doesn't sound fun. It doesn't sound easy. It sounds very costly to live this way. But there is so much to be gained in just the acknowledgement of his name. Jesus doesn't just say, hey, go suffer and too bad for you. There's real joy. Peter says in 1 Peter that there's joy inexpressible when it comes to suffering. It removes the dross. And so we then transition to a grace-strengthened praise, verses 15 and 16. So through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And so here is the key to the church. It is through him. Not through yourself, not through an additional sacrifice, not through your additional prayers, but through him. He is the one. He is the aim. There's no sacrifice that the church can give apart from Jesus that is going to make him happy with you or give you real joy. That's just works apart from faith. That's laboring to earn God's attention and love when really Christ has done it already. What we give up to God is not another animal, but what we give up to God is a sacrifice of praise. Here's the tangible. Here's the tangible. It's not the sacrificial food. It's our lips of praise. And praises from our lips are a sacrifice because it's not linked to the in crowd, the in camp, and it's ultimately left open for ridicule and scrutiny because it's not tangible enough. Where is your God? You say it from your lips, but I don't see anything before me. This reminds me of a story in Jesus' ministry in Matthew 15. Jesus gets done pointing out the flaws of the Jews, and he says, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? In other words, the Jews had taken God's word and then they added to it. God's word plus some traditions. And they were bypassing God's word. They were putting God's word down and upholding their own tradition that they added to their religion. Jesus doesn't stop with those words. He presses into the camp of the Jews even harder. You get down to verse 10. So he just calls the Jews out. He's like, he gathers all the people here. He says, he called the people to him and he said, here... And understand. This is what the Jews were doing. They were so frustrated, right? And then Jesus carried them out. I love Chet. I'm sorry. Sorry, Cassie. It's the ADD mind. Okay. So he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Okay, we've heard that before. But listen. Then the disciples came to Jesus and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard you say this? Jesus answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. 
The disciples were worried about Jesus offending the camp of the Pharisees, the, the camp of popularity, but Jesus was not concerned about winning a popularity contest, and he was not concerned about whether or not he offended them. He was standing solidly for the kingdom of God. He engaged the camp, but then he offended the camp when he offered up praises to God as opposed to praises to the tradition of men. You see the distinction? Jesus' offense was a form of a sacrifice of praise. So the church is to bear the same fruit of praise to God. It will ultimately cost the church something. Not to buy into those strange or divisive teachings. And Jesus also said, out of the mouth overflows the abundance of the heart. And so the church, therefore, isn't to just give praises from their lips, but they are to go out by doing good and sharing, to give of themselves, even physically, tangibly. These are, we are living sacrifices in this way. So church, go out, display to the world your brotherly love for your brothers and sisters in the faith. Go out and show hospitality to strangers. Bring in the, the foreigner, the passerby. Bring them in and show them who Christ is, how he brought you from death to life, how you came from being a stranger to a citizen of a heavenly kingdom. Go out and do these good things. So church, are you willing to offend the camps that are around you by speaking the truth in love? Are you willing? Is Jesus worth losing your friends, your popularity, being, being kicked out of the popular camp? If you're in Christ, that means then your mouth, your life is a constant giving and sharing, a sacrifice of the hope of Jesus, even when it's not popular. Are you willing to stand on the grace of Jesus given to you and to give Him praise? When the world says, where's your God in this time? Or how's Jesus going to fix the problems we have in this country? You cannot be weakened by the temptation to say, you know what, you're right. Jesus is not powerful enough. You must be strengthened rather by His grace and boldly declare His praises from your lips and boldly give what you have as a fruit of His grace to you. And that sort of sacrifice is trusting Ultimately, not in self, but in Him who reigns. He has the power. He has the authority. And so we find ourselves, lastly, with grace-strengthened submission. Verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. These are almost like swear words in our society when we talk about authority and obeying them and submitting to them, but let me define these terms a little bit here. We are to obey, meaning we are the church is to carry out the direction of the leadership as they carry out the direction and the commands of Jesus. Obey the leaders as the leaders obey Jesus. Submit to the leaders, meaning yield yourself to their leadership over you, their maturity over you as they submit themselves to Jesus. So to be a leader means you first must be a follower. You can't be a leader if you don't know how to follow. And a leader, a pastor, a leader in the church doesn't just get a free pass because they're considered a leader. They have to be measured up to and held up to the standard of Christ Jesus. So the church is to obey and submit to leaders for the sake of Christ. And this is assurance to them. Why? Because they're beat up. They're tired. They're worn down. They need healthy leadership in times where they are being significantly challenged to deny the faith and to question their faith in every single way. You don't need to eat these foods. You can be strengthened by grace. And so that's the tie-in from remembering your leaders to obeying your leaders in this passage. You not only remember them, but now in the now you obey and submit to them and that is an advantage to the church. That's an advantage. Pastors have a responsibility to the Lord for their leadership. As a pastor, I will have to give an account to the Lord for how I led you, and not only me, the other pastors, for how we have led you. We don't just get a, a free pass, get off the hook for whatever we want to do. We are held accountable to God's Word. 
And this is our primary task. But I'll tell you this, it cannot be done in the strength of the pastor. And it cannot be done in the strength of the leader, but by the grace of God. Therefore, that's why it says, even in these hard times, it is to their joy. It is a joy for them to do this. And again, Peter reminds us, suffering produces joy inexpressible. It is hard to describe. It's inexpressible for me to say why leading you among a hard time, hardships, persecution is actually a joyful thing. It's something that is empowered and fueled by the Holy Spirit, not anything else. And so a church that does not obey or submit to leadership as to the Lord, it becomes a burden rather than a joy. It causes the pastor or the leadership to groan, be frustrated. And the church becomes then, if the pastor is groaning and frustrated, the church then becomes susceptible to diverse and strange teachings. And that is a disadvantage to the church. So build up the leaders of the church. Build them up. So church, I say to you, obey and submit to the leadership of Redeemer as they obey and submit to the leadership of Jesus. This is the Lord's structure. The church was not developed in a vacuum. It wasn't, it wasn't hey, I got an idea for this new religion called Christianity. Let's call it, the, uh, let's have a church and let's just do these weird things, you know, like services and do communion and baptism. Let's just... Make all this stuff up. That's not how it happened. The Lord instituted all of these things. He put them in His Word. And I'll tell you, there are evil leaders out there. There are pastors who are leading people astray. Who are like the Jews were in Jesus' time, adding tradition to the Word of God. Do not follow their lead. Measure my leadership, measure my words, measure the leadership and the words and the actions and the life of all of the leaders and the pastors here at Redeemer to the Word of God. Because when you face the world, here's what's going to happen. When you face these camps, leaders are going to emerge in those camps. Those leaders will surface and it'll be easy for us to get caught up and forget the leadership here that the Lord has ordained and to, and to go into and follow almost blindly the leadership of these camps that are ultimately against the Lord. It will become tempting to not obey or not submit to God and His leadership. And so I'll say this. Those who find themselves drifting in the cultural tides and the camps out there and are drifting farther away from the church are those who have no real gospel leadership around them. Or they've completely rejected gospel leadership entirely. And they are ultimately susceptible to harm, to diverse and strange teachings because they're on their own. So church, I want to let you know it is a joy for me to lead you to Jesus. It's, it's a joy for me. I'm honored to be one of your leaders, one of five pastors, and, and to lead you into the good fight. I'm aware of the cost of going against popular opinion and the camps in society right now. I may be liked or popular in some camps, but I will be growingly unpopular in others, and that's okay. For the sake of His kingdom, for the sake of the King, for the sake of your souls, it is worth it. It is a joy to me to do that. And as a shepherd, as an under-shepherd, I will fight for you. I will be for you. I will fight to feed you the Word of God. I will fight to care for you, to lead you, to protect you. And I ultimately commit to that task under the strengthened submission of the grace of the Lord. What leadership does this world have to offer that is so willing to give it all for you in that way? Look, I understand the pressures. My entire life is under a microscope. I'm up here on stage. People are evaluating me. They're evaluating my wife. 
evaluating my family, evaluating my words, evaluating what I put on social media, evaluating how I act or interact with people, how I pray or don't pray with people. I'm often criticized, right? Or I could even be praised. And I understand there's an immense amount of pressure. But I'm going to tell you this. If I had to face that pressure in my own power, I would have quit ministry years ago. But it's by the grace of God and the power of God that I don't feel pressured or weighed down by that. And if it, if it means that my life is under a microscope with the, with the chance that you might know Jesus and know Him more and love Him more, then so be it. May my entire life be an open book for the entire church. So what has given you strength as you face racism, as you face injustices, fear of death, homelessness, poverty, murder, drug addictions, depression, suicide, domestic violence, of child abuse, murder. I mean, this, those are just a small list of what we experience in this part of our city. What is your strength as you engage? What will fuel you as you wade the waters of this environment and some of those camps that you haven't even been invited to, but you just showed up in? What strength does it take to fix all of these problems? What strength does it take to bring hope to a hopeless world? And so I mentioned Lieutenant Murphy earlier. Remembering his story is good and it, and it shouldn't be forgotten. And doing the Murph in honor of him is, is a good thing. And it will continue to most likely be a staple in the CrossFit community. But even still, Murphy was just a person like you and me. Just a person. And he's not alive. The workout only gives us a temporary fuel that is easily waned when it's pressed up against when our loved one dies. When we find out we have cancer. When we watch our country go up in flames over racial tensions. In those moments, we need strength that is far more sustainable. We need a never-ending spring of grace and strength to supply you and me. Yes, be motivated by others, but allow your source of strength not to be found in others or in those camps, but in Jesus who is alive and well, and His grace never runs out of supplying you with strength. It is the strength of the Lord, not anyone else, whose power is made perfect in our weaknesses. So go today, not temporarily inspired, but eternally strengthened for His kingdom, for His glory, forever and ever. Amen.